Business has always been about turning a profit, making money. But can it stand for something more? Something beyond dollars and cents? We think so. We think that today, business has a higher calling, a purpose to be fair and just, to do right by their workers, customers, communities, and the environment. And it turns out companies successful doing that also do better for their bottom line. When you see the Just Capital seal, it means this company is a force for good. Visit JustCapital.com to learn more. Well, good morning and happy Easter to you on this early Easter Sunday morning. And I just would like to tell you three short stories about Easter. Uh, There are three stories from John's gospel, and they center around his writing and the way he presents the story of Easter. Two of those stories are bookends to John's book. So they're very vividly the beginning of the story and the end of the story. So uh, you would obviously then conclude that they come at the first of John's gospel and at the end of John's gospel, and that would be true. The third story is nestled in between those two, and it carries much of the same intent So uh, it's a relatively simple question to consider on this Easter Sunday morning, but here it is. What's the big deal about Easter? What's the big deal about Easter? I suppose there's not much I can say that'll add uh, many new thoughts to the Easter story. And uh, that said, I don't think there are very many new thoughts that the Easter story really needs. Uh, I don't think it needs to be any better or any more dramatic or any more meaningful. I do think we need help in connecting to its message of hope and why it matters to us as individuals. I'd love to leave here in a few minutes uh, and have a sense that you have a better sense of what happened and why it matters to you that first Easter. The first story I'd like to tell you is about a writer, and his name is John, and he sat down to write an account of the events that had happened around him. This was the apostle John, the fisherman John, who became a follower of Jesus and later wrote a gospel message of John. He's responsible for five books in the New Testament, the gospel of John, the three letters of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation. So pretty prolific writer in the New Testament. He sat down to write an account and he sifted through the story, the timeline, the memories, and he situated himself and he started to write He tells us in the final verses of his gospel these words, John 20, 31, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that that by believing you may have life in his name. So he's writing that we may have life. He will talk in his gospel about the fact that uh, Jesus came to give us not just life, but abundant life. That's a part of his vision. He'll use the images of light, of hope, of power, and of love, these these themes will dominate his storyline. They will be uh, in effect from the first moments of his writing uh, and laced throughout the story. One theme seems to dominate all the others. He wants to say and he wants that his readers would know. And so it's woven through the fabric of the narrative. And that message is there is hope for change. There is hope for change. Things can be different. John writes with a sweeping kind of intent. So in the first story, a man named John sits down to write the story, and and this is how he starts the story. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. 
Without him, nothing was made that has been made, and in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Moving to verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So how do you want to tell your story, John? I want the people to know that this is a new creation. So John parrots the Genesis story. In the beginning was the Word. He is purposefully writing a parallel to the Genesis account of creation. And he's saying there is a, another piece of creation happening, and he roots what his story is, this new thing God is doing, into the ancient story of creation. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And, of course, what is he going to talk about next? Well, what does Genesis talk about next? He said, let there be light. And so, of course, John is going to deal with light. The true light was coming into the world. Not the light that lights up the darkness, but the light that lights up the metaphorical darkness, the, the human darkness, pain, suffering, loss, failure. That true light was coming into the world. It was established at the foundation of the world. God created. And now listen, the logos, the mind and character of God. If you want to go back into the Greek and take that definition of the, what's defined for us here, in the beginning was the word. That is logos in Greek. If you want to go into the ancient definition, it means the divine force at the center of the universe that holds the chaos in order. The divine force at the center of the universe. It holds the chaos in order. That's how the Greeks understood it. John is using that strong word. It can be summarized as the mind and character of God. And listen to what he says. So the mind and character of God that was present at the beginning of creation became tabernacled in human flesh. The divine force at the center of the universe that holds the chaos in order was tabernacled in human flesh and dwelt among us. These are powerful, powerful images that John is creating. And so when you begin to think about that, when God walked around in human flesh, you, you can see that strange things happened. Like that day when Jesus encountered one of the great prophets of our day, John the Baptist. The moment was odd and weird and powerful and cosmic. John records it this way, John 1.32. Then John gave this testimony I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. That's, that's just weird. I mean... John baptizes Jesus and the heavens open and there's a voice from heaven and there's a dove and there's a spirit and it remains and these cosmic things are happening. 
And John had a group of disciples, John the Baptist. Now, let me make sure we're clear in here. John the Apostle is writing the story of John the Baptist. So it's not the same John. There's two in the story, John the writer and John the Baptist, who becomes the forerunner of the Messiah. And John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, who was also his cousin, if you've followed the story. Baptizes Jesus, the heavens open. Now, John the Baptist has had a group of disciples following him. And when this moment, this cosmic moment, the voice from heaven, the heavens opening, the spirit descending, whatever that all looked like, whatever happened, the disciples are all standing around. They don't really know what to do. They don't feel like they should keep following John. And John himself has declared, this is the one, this is the Messiah. And so what is Jesus's response to that? Does he coerce them? Does he recruit them? Not in John's memory, not John the gospel writer's memory. Here's what John says he does. What do you want? Why are you standing around looking at me? What are you thinking? And when they say to, the, to him, ask him a question, who are you? What are you really doing? What is it about? This is what he says. Come and you will see. Come and you will see. There's no story about creeds or rules or traditions this is a story about God in human flesh. Understand? It's, it's, you don't have to believe the narrative, but just know the narrative. This is the God of the universe, tabernacled in human flesh. And when someone says, what are you all about? What is this? He doesn't recite creeds. He doesn't give them a religious talk. He says, come and you will see. I think it means that John, the storyteller, is trying to get you and I to listen if you follow me, you'll see heaven open and angels ascending and descending. Things will never be the same. You're going to see things you never thought you'd see. You're going to have hope you never thought you'd have. John is setting up the story. This is what happened. This is how it unfolded. We, we'd never seen anything like it. We were fishermen. We were pretty simple folks. And then weird, crazy, cosmic things began to happen, and we started to see possibilities we never even imagined. So, of course, next John relates the fact that Jesus turns the water into wine. He was consistently taking ordinary things and making them extraordinary. John is conveying a story. He's not just telling you what happened. He's putting them in an order to explain to you. When God is around, when Jesus is around, ordinary things become extraordinary. He's writing a story about a God who, from the foundation of the world, intended for there to be a message of light and a message of love and a message of hope. He intended to make life a place of joy where wine overflows and it flows right out of the mundane places of life. Jesus, fresh off the wedding and the wine in John's gospel, then goes and clears the temple. Interestingly, John puts the cleansing of the temple at the very beginning. The other gospel writers put it down towards the end. They are telling their story in an order for a reason. He clears the temple. He chases out the doomsayers. He chases out the bitter. He chases out the cynical he tells people that all that God intended was not going to be found in their religion or in their temple or in their ritual or in their creed, but in a personal relationship available to everyone with the God of the universe. When we come back, I'm going to show you how John says it in such a beautifully stylized quotation from Jesus. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to Healing Conversations on KABC 790 on this Easter Sunday morning. 
and we're talking about God's intrusion into the world and John's style in sharing this gospel message and what it means and what it looks like and why it matters for you and why it brings us hope. So John has him turn the water into mine. He's taking ordinary things and making them extraordinary. That's what God does. He helps us find joy in everyday life, in the routine, taking mundane things and making them divine, making them useful, making them joyful. And then he has him cleansing the temple. He has him driving out the cynicism. He has him driving out the doomsayers and the cynical people. And, and, and there's a message in it for John's purposes. You're not going to find what you're looking for in religion or in the temple or in the creed. You're going to find it in a personal relationship with God. And so then in John chapter 2, he has this incredibly stylized moment quoting Jesus. The Jews then responded to him. What sign can you show us to prove your authority for cleansing the temple in this way? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Can you think of a more stylized way of saying it's not about this temple over here that took 46 years to build. It's about this temple right here. It's about this personal body, presence of God, tabernacled in human flesh. It's about a relationship with me. All those other things can become distractions to the truth of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Then somehow if we haven't gotten the message in this opening narrative in this story about light and hope and power and change and new creation and the ancient presence of Jesus in the process, under the cover of darkness comes a man named Nicodemus, chapter 3 of John's story. And what does he say? You must be born again. You must be born again. It's in this conversation under the cover of darkness that Jesus utters the words, maybe the most famous verse in all of the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, John three seventeen. And so there's new hope. There's new beginnings. God loved the world. He gave his son And so John chooses to write a story of beginnings. At the far end of the John story is uh, the telling of another account. The other end is the bookend that I talked about. The final two stories revolve around the events of the resurrection. The second story is about people. It's about people like you and me. It's about people who were flawed, but each had their own unique way. And in some ways, it's comical. So listen to the story, John 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. That is a John referring to himself, the writer John referring to himself, the one who Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb, and they were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter, and he reached the tomb first. I don't know about you, but that seems like a trivial piece of information to be included in the story of the resurrection story. But John 
felt the need to put it in there. He and Peter ran for the tomb, but he was faster, and he got there first. Both were running, verse 4, but the other disciple outran Peter, and he reached the tomb first. And he bent over, and he looked in at the strips of the linen lying there, but he didn't go in. And then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb, and he saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying there in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, in case you missed it, also went inside, and he saw and he believed. They still did not understand from the Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to where they were staying. That John would have Mary Magdalene coming to the grave. Mary has gotten a, a lot on her She's been considered popularly to be a prostitute, but there's no biblical evidence that that was her trade. She lived in Magdala, ancient Magdala. Ancient Magdala has been uncovered. If you go to the Holy Land, uh, you can visit the ruins of the ancient city of Magdala. You can visit the synagogue in the ancient city of Magdala. It stood at an intersection of the ancient roadways, the one that ran north and south, and ran around the western side of the Sea of Galilee and on up far north into Damascus and points east. It was a crossroads north and, or east and west as well that it was a, a, a terminus for a road coming in from the Mediterranean Sea. So at this little village of Magdala, you had a, a road coming east from the Mediterranean and north and south a major, major thoroughfare. And of course, these cities that set on these major roadways and intersections uh, had a tendency to take care of all of the needs of human beings. And of course, those sexual needs would have been something. But we have no evidence that Mary was involved in that trade at all. What we do know from Luke's gospel is there's a story of a woman around Magdala who's impure, but Luke doesn't say that Mary is the impure woman. It's just we put two and two together. All we really know about her is that from her, Jesus cast seven demons. Now, I don't know exactly what that means, but it doesn't sound good. I would just say it would be evident that Mary had a pretty rough life, that there were some things about her that were really difficult. She was a deeply afflicted woman. But in this new place of hope, there is change for everyone. She runs to get Peter and to get John, and they have a foot race. And John, the author, and John and Peter, the apostle, they they run a race. And we get surprising detail, as I mentioned. John seems pained to tell us that just because Peter entered the tomb first, it was John that had arrived first and had outrun. We're told twice in this passage that it was John who got there first. Flawed people. A woman with seven demons, Peter, who hours earlier had denied Christ, and John, who seems filled up with his own petty insecurities, all these things are bubbling to the surface. These three are witnesses to one of God's greatest miracles. It's, all, it's like John in his storytelling is shouting, if Mary can change and be included in the center of God's plan, so can you. If Peter can change and be included in the center of God's plan, so can you. If John can change and be included in the center of God's plan, so can you. And then there is this final story, 
John 20, 11, he continues. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over and looked into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated there. Jesus' body had been where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, please tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. And Jesus answered her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus says, Don't hold me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them all these things that she had Scene. So this final story goes back to the cosmic story of God in creation. Jesus, who had suffered all that humans can suffer. He has suffered betrayal by his friends. He suffered betrayal at the hands of his enemies. He suffered injustice, cruelty beyond imagination, public humiliation, shame, ridicule, suffering, and finally death. I think what John wants us to know is if betrayal by friends and enemies can be changed, then you have hope for change. If injustice can be changed, you can be changed. If cruelty can be changed, you can be changed. If public humiliation can be changed, you can be changed. If personal shame can be changed, you can be changed. If ridicule can be changed, you can be changed. If suffering can be changed, you can be changed. If death can be changed, you can be changed. John wants you and I to know from the first word on the page to the last that there is hope for change. There's hope for your story. There's hope for things coming together and not falling apart. What's the big deal about Easter? I suppose the big deal about Easter is that this message of new life is a message for your new life, new hope, new light, new joy, change, genuine, real, lasting change. You don't have to believe the story, but you should understand the way it's told. This is a story that says to you, I don't care where you've been, I don't care what's happened to you, I don't care how bad it is, I don't care how many times you've failed, I don't care what it is that seems in unchangeable to you, there's hope. There is genuine hope for change. And everything about the story is about your hope to find life, abundant life. That's why Easter matters. That's what its message is about. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to Healing Conversations on KABC 790. I'm Dave Roberts. Eric McClinahan is in studio. Welcome, Eric. Happy Easter. How are you? Happy Easter. Thank you. Here we go. Are you excited for your egg hunt? I am excited for the <laughs> egg hunt. Yeah. I love Easter. I mean, it's a it's a great day. Do you do something traditional on Easter? I mean, other than work? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a little odd because in my family of, I mean, obviously we haven't gathered for a couple of years, for sure, Easter, but right. we'll, we'll probably gather again this year. Um, my daughter is like the only kid. Ah, yeah. So like the, the egg hunt is really for her yeah. only. 
Well, I like that. That's a good system. So she gets the odds are pretty good. She then. gets a ton of candy. Yeah, that's perfect. But yeah, you know the Christmas white elephant yes. gift exchange. Yes, we do that with Easter baskets. Oh, very nice. Every person brings a different Easter basket wrapped. Yes, and we unwrap them and we do a white elephant thing with Easter baskets. It's fun. really fun. Yeah, really that's fun. It's really fun because when you get like you know grandma stealing something from somebody else, yeah. it's chaos and it's awesome. Yeah, that's fun. That's fun. If you get something stolen by grandma, it's just the best thing ever. Yeah, that's good. That's good. <laughs> what about you? You have traditions? Uh, you know, just being together really is the tradition. Food is so flexible. You know, we don't have a traditional Easter meal. Uh, nobody in the family is terribly fond of ham. and Yeah, we do ham. Yeah, do you do that? Yeah. That's traditional, I think. Uh, not sure. Uh, but we we generally are just together. We all have, uh, you know, and we do an egg hunt with the kids. And so, yeah, so that's a, it's a big family day. And of course, you know, lots of good eats and, and all that. So, yeah. Well, of course we work a little that day. It's the Super Bowl. It's the Super it's Bowl. Jesus, Jesus Bowl today. <laughs> yes, it is. It is the, you know, I think people out there know this, but people are more inclined to attend church on Easter Sunday than any other uh, Sunday of the year. And so, uh, we tend to have lots of guests, and this will be our first time in, I don't know, maybe 12 or 15 years that we have not, except the last two, obviously, mm-hmm. when we've been online only. But for the last uh, 15 years, we, we've we been offside at a high school auditorium hosting two mm-hmm. big services and then a third service at our Pasadena campus. But uh, but but we're back on our main campus uh, yeah. for Easter this year, and uh, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, it it'll be tight. Yeah, but it'll three be good. three services, and <laughs> so uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, it'll be an interesting engagement. So as we think about John and his stylized storytelling and how he puts this story together, what are your thoughts? Did you have questions? And yeah, well, I've been I've been kind of on a kick lately in my brain of trying to figure out what the Old Testament is and and what it's supposed to mean for us, right? And thinking through all of that. And this kind of sparks that again, because this tongue twister of a way that he starts, the word was God and was with God and was God in the light, and then the new light and the true light is coming. It's weird to me because I don't really understand who God was and how he was interacting with people right? pre-Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Sure. And, and it almost feels like they were lost and confused until Jesus and that I should, I should feel like I'm glad that I was born post-Jesus and yeah. can read this and understand it. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I don't sure. understand how God says there was light, but then the true light was really coming later. It just yeah. gets really jumbled up for me. Sure. Well, I mean, when you when you take the the narrative of uh, how the the story unfolds, it's it's a growing. You know, the Bible is revelation. One of my favorite things, and I think we've talked about it on this segment before, but one of my favorite things is the books like the the Bible Code, where the Bible really has it's full of secret messages. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's what I like most about uh, apocalyptic literature and, you know, trying to understand the prophetic things moving forward. Because here's the, here's the great irony of people who are out there discerning all these secret messages of the Bible. The Bible is a book of revelation. It is a book that reveals. It's not a book that keeps things hidden. It's a book that reveals things. And so if you follow the scope of the narrative, it starts very simply and it ends very complexly. What started in a garden ends in a city, Mm -hmm. a fulfilled city, a a renewed city, 
a place where there's no more death or dying or sickness or separation or, you know, so, so then that's true of the story of God. God is understood very primitively in the beginning. You know, he, he gives us names by which to identify the characteristics. Again, you have to believe this, but just this is how the book is written. The earliest accounts of who is God are given in the various names that he offers to people so they can understand different aspects of his character. And then mm. we get the law. In the meantime, we're getting a narrative in which God is interacting with people. And what's interesting about Jesus when he, you know, comes along is he will speak into those narratives. He'll say, well, you've heard it said, but I will say unto you, you understood it this way, but that was incorrect. It was this way. Mm -hmm. Uh, He'll talk about multiple things that happen in the Old Testament and how his provision is effective for those things. And the other thing is very interesting as the as the story in the Old Testament becomes more and more complex. We get the law, we get the narrative, we get the kingdom established. We have David as king. We go through the judges and the prophets and the you know all of the different aspects, the kings, all of the different aspects in which God is acting. At some point, what we develop into is a very personal God is speaking to and through individuals. So mm-hmm. the voice of God is being heard and understood and spoken. Mm-hmm. And so we come to kind of understand that the Holy Spirit that was alive in the New Testament was present. God's presence was effectively <clears throat> around folks from the beginning. Mm-hmm. That was manifest in different ways. What happens in Jesus is the full revelation. You know, you, it, now there's no more room or space for misunderstanding. So Jesus then is constantly, you've heard it said to love those who love you. I say love your enemies. Mm-hmm. He's constantly correcting, fulfilling, moving the bar higher and forward and away from systemic Judaism and into relational, mm-hmm. which was ironically more a part of the Old Testament than what it had become by the time Jesus lived. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I guess what I wonder is because once Jesus came and we had the full revelation of God, did God stop interacting with humanity in the same ways? No. And that's what's so powerful about the story of Acts where, you know, because people say, well, if didn't we get the gift of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost? Well, the, the Holy Spirit was manifest in a new way. And, you know, the Holy Spirit was preexistent and present and active. But now suddenly the body of Christ, the visible representation of God in the world is handed off to the church. That's the story of Acts is now you and I, as a part of this church of Jesus Christ, we are to carry forward the story, the message, and the presence of God has gone with that process and Mm -hmm. continues to today. The church in all of its manifestations. But things like, you know, like Moses went up to the hill and was given the Ten Commandments and burning bushes and pillars of fire. And was that God interacting in a different way? You know, I and think now God, we have Jesus, so we get it better. Well, or? I just think I think all those things can be true at once. I mean, I, I think there are still people in the world because of their, you know, their their bent towards the mystical and their need for the mystical. <clears throat> I think God meets a lot of people in mystical ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in our Western, you know, empirical, scientific, rational perspectives, He doesn't. That's not where we look for Him. It's not what we're waiting for. Uh, we're highly skeptical about such things. So therefore, I don't know that we feel them to be necessary or important. And we read back into history that they probably didn't happen that way. Mm. But I don't think that's true. I think, you you know, if you go around the world, 
you have people that have very profound mystical encounters with the divine. Right. And, uh, and so I, I think that the great message of the Bible and of God's presence in the world is that he meets humanity where he finds them and he works within the languages and the tools that they understand. Mm-hmm. So it's not that God is changing, he's adapting. Mm-hmm. He's making himself available into uh, the understanding that's present. Yeah, because it's hard for me sometimes to think that this idea of believing in God, we're not all born on a level playing field of sure. how hard that's going to be. Of course, that's absolutely because, right. Like these disciples got to see the water turning into wine. Sure, like if taste of, it. Like of course, yeah. And now, two thousand years later, I have to read it and believe it. Well, you can't go to, to Canaan Galley and buy wedding wine now. Uh, <laughs> many, many souvenir shops there well, with wedding. I just have to do that then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm one trip away from fully believing. There you go. But yeah, absolutely. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and so, but then I think, but am I then privileged to be born post Jesus? Because pre Jesus, they wouldn't have. Sure. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But I think that's where you. You know, uh, I love this old Bob Benson story where somebody's having a conversation similar to this. And he says, if if I could just play tennis with God, then I could maybe believe in him. And, and at some point, Benson just says, well, hit the ball. He'll hit it back. And I think that reality of if you're looking, if you're searching, if you're working within the tools that you have and the prejudices that you have and presuppositions you have, God's going to meet you in that space. Uh, and so I, I think God is faithful in that sense. And mm. I think it's okay that we can look at the stories and go, well, that wouldn't have made sense to me. And that doesn't make sense in the context. And maybe there was some, th- there is a highly, one of the things that makes the Bible so authentic is it's written over thousands of years. It is very rooted in its cultural integrity. So when, you know, when the Old Testament makes a statement about what God said and we go, I don't know that God would say that. Well, Yeah because we're not in that cultural place. But that time, that was the cultural understanding. And so they are speaking it in the language they speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that adds to its authenticity. It doesn't distract from it. Right. You know, if you were going to clean it up and write it all at once and edit it all out, you'd clean all that up. You would create a story in which God is presented in, an, in a consistent way. But you're, uh, you're having a representation of God's work over thousands of years. Of course, it's spoken of in culturally insensitive ways at times. We're going to take a break and we'll be back and continue the conversation. Hey, welcome back on this early Easter Sunday morning. You're listening to Healing Conversation on KABC 790. I'm Dave Roberts, Eric McLenahan. We're talking about the message of Easter and why it matters. What are you thinking about? Yeah, well, we were talking about, you know, pillars of fire and burning bushes right. and then Jesus came and the the Bible is just so full of these extraordinary things yes. like that, right? Right. And then I don't, am I missing the extraordinary in my life or is it just, does God not interact with us in that way anymore? Um, I think the first part is yes and the second part is yes. I mean, I, I think that God works within a culture. So if I said, you know, who probably, I could argue that in scholastic Christianity right now, the most profound voice, this is a, would be an argument, would be N.T. Wright. I think it, it's fair to say one of the most prominent voices within the context of scholastic, rational Christianity days, N.T. Wright. Why? Well, because he speaks from an intellectual base, but he also embraces the mystery of Scripture. He does. A, he has a very fine balance between the mystery of God and the divine 
uh, actions of God and deeply rooted scholastic integrity, academic integrity. It doesn't surprise me that 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 sort of person, you know, his books sell millions because he's speaking things that that resonate within our culture. Jesus turning the water into wine resonated in his culture. Mm-hmm. Miracles would not resonate in our culture. Mm-hmm. What do you think would happen if, you know, over at the church we suddenly said, hey, we, there's a lot of miracles happening. What, what do you think the general mood would be? Cynicism. Cynicism. Mm-hmm. Skepticism. Because, but we'd have it on video. But we'd have it on video, and that can never be tampered with. And then it would be on the internet. And if it's on the internet, that it it's has true. to be true. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think I, I think within the context of its culture. But but you know, there's a quote. I'll probably mess it up, but it says something like, "You can look at life as if there are no miracles, or you can look at life as if it is a miracle." Yeah. Sure. And so I do think we are very skeptical, and we miss so much of what God is doing and the miracles that happen every day around us. And we're not great at celebrating joy. Mm -hmm. We're just not really good at it. I don't know what it is about our culture, but we have found criticism and cynicism to be a symbol of wisdom and maturity Mm -hmm. and joy to be silly. You know, to be optimistic is to be immature. You know, we're kind of like the old Stoics of old is, yeah, so I think there are miracles all around us. Mm We talk a lot about Easter. We talk about um, resurrection and we talk about Jesus overcoming death, right? Yeah. But from a practical sense, how did Easter, how did Jesus' life change the course of humanity? Who was humanity pre-Jesus and who was humanity after Jesus? How did it alter? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, several things. Uh, Jesus proclaims himself to be the fulfillment of his Isaiah's property. I've come to set the captives free, to heal the brokenhearted, to release those from prison. I think that's the great symbol. Up until this moment, there hadn't been an understanding that you can be emotionally, spiritually, psychologically free, even if you are not physically free. That, That there could be this separation in which God can do work inside of a human being that causes them to... Uh, overcome, to be able to endure and overcome and find joy and find purpose and meaning in the midst of, you know, impossibilities. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the message then becomes so profound because when you talk about the New Testament, you're talking about a people that are not only enslaved by the Romans, they're enslaved by their religion. They're enslaved by Judaism. And so it's a very profound statement you know, when you step back from it, you know, there is a political liberation and a spiritual liberation, all of it, which is saying Rome's irrelevant. Judaism's irrelevant. Politics are irrelevant. You know, uh, religion is not the point. The point is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that Mm -hmm. overcomes everything, even including death. Now, the way the New Testament tells the story is, Death is the ultimate limiting fear factor of human beings. And so if you do everything else but you don't overcome death, then what's the point? Because mm-hmm. we're all still headed for that same destination. Right. But in the death and resurrection of Jesus, then you have what N.T. Wright, since we brought him up, what N.T. Wright says is you have the end of the story in the middle of the story. And so the resurrection becomes a sign that says not the story hasn't all yet been told. 
your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That hasn't all happened. But we, but the end of the story happened in the middle. So if you can get your brain around this concept, the Jewish idea is that God worked six days in creation, and then on the seventh day he rested. Mm-hmm. So that's how the church is. That's what Judaism is. Mm-hmm. You, you, you work and work and work and work and work, and when your work is all done, you rest. So then Jesus is resurrected on the first day of the week. Mm-hmm. And the message is that the end of the story has moved to the middle. Mm -hmm. So the New Testament church said, we're going to start worshiping on the first day of the week. And now the symbolism becomes Jesus has done the work. We just still have to go out in the week and finish the work. We, We just are wrapping up and cleaning up what has already been decided at the first of the week. We're not waiting till the end of the week. It is a, it is a complete 180 to how the Old Testament told the story. Work, 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 and finally it'll be done. Nope, nope, it's done, go work. Mm-hmm. It's it's two very different perspectives. And so that's how Jesus changes it. That's how this moment changes the life of the perspective of the world. You know, the scripture talks about it again and again and again. He's the first fruits of all that is to come. He's an He's a deposit. He's earnest money guaranteeing our outcome. Our inheritance is fixed however many metaphors you want to use from the New Testament, you know, the outcome has been decided. Mm-hmm. We just have to wait till every, all the, you know, we signed the contract, we bought the house, but it's got a clear escrow. That, that, that's the way the New Testament understands this moment. Uh, the outcome is set. Now we just have to work until, so, so we talk, so the New Testament will say things like this. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. Brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be foolish about those who have fallen asleep in Christ. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. Uh, You know, we don't think about people dying the same way we used to because the outcome has already been decided. Right. Death has been overcome. Right. So. It does this story about them running to the tomb. Yeah. Right. It does give me a little hope from what I was talking about before about how they were there. Yeah. They were there and still didn't get it. Oh, yeah. Like Absolutely. it seemed like something would have like at least triggered them to go, well, he said he was going to conquer death. Yeah. He, he, like they didn't even, no. they were there and, and didn't get it. They no. had to go run and see it and they were surprised. Yeah. And it makes me feel a little better, better that 2000 years ago, I don't well, get it and, sometimes. And, you know, John, the story doesn't end here. So where do they go from here? Well, they go back to the upper room and they lock themselves in the upper room. And we're told that a week later, they are locked in the room for fear that the Jews will come and get them, mm-hmm. you know, and Jesus appears to them. So, you know, not only do they not believe yet, and, you know, there's other accounts from the other gospels, you know, some other people, Jesus appeared to the two men on the road to Emmaus, and they come back and they tell them all, and they're like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. We don't know what you're talking about. They literally hear the testimony, and they're like, yeah, I don't know. Um, so, uh, yeah, it is hopeful. They are thick. Uh, just like we are. Yeah. That's the wonderful thing about the Bible is that as you as you get into the humanity of the stories, you go, yep, that's me. Yep, I act like that. Yep, I would do that. Yep, that'd be me. I mean, we would all be Peter and the denial. We would all be, uh, you know, the the Elijah in his depression. We would all be these people. Yeah. Because they're just humans. Right. But you don't you don't have to fully understand it to be able to receive it. Yeah. I mean, I think that the powerful thing is. Uh, it, it is one thing to talk about rational and irrational. It's another thing to talk about transrational. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I do think that, you know, faith in God is to say, I accept the mystery. There is more to life. There is more to existence. There's more to the universe than I understand. And and what's interesting to me is we're perfectly willing to do that scientifically. You know, we, we are all day long going, well, I don't get it, but it's, you know, there it is. You know, yeah. it's happening. But we're not willing to do that in any, in any divine way. We're less willing. We're and so I think that there is that sense in which why not surrender yourself to a mystery that the things we cannot explain might have deeper meaning and purpose. And this is the hope. This is the mindset. This is the worldview. And that is, hey, in all things, God's working for the good. Yeah. That, that I don't have to look at life like, well, I'm a cynic and everything's all. We don't have to believe the politician's story about humanity. The story of God about humanity is that each person is created in the image of God and has immense worth and value and that we're to respect one another and love one another and that we're to do that not just out of the goodness and nobility of our own heart, which is deeply questionable, but out of the fact that we are accountable to a divine God who created us. And in us, it's a divine kind of love that gives us the capacity to care. And we know we ought to. Right. There is a divine ought in every one of us. We get it. We yeah. see things that ought not happen, and we see things that ought to happen, and we feel it. Mm-hmm. Why not lean into that yeah. and, and just celebrate? And so the resurrection, Easter matters because it, it is the birth of new life. It is the birth of a new way of living. So I love the characters. My prayer for you and hope for you is that on this Easter Sunday morning, you experience new hope. Happy Easter. God bless you. Stacking Benjamins with Joe and his good friend OG not only has great financial insight, it's laid back with humor too. The quiet luxury trend is out and loud budgeting is in. Are we tired of the pet names? Yeah, because I'm loud and obnoxious, so this fits right in with me. I'm like, yes, finally budgeting for me. (laughs) I get to walk into a restaurant and go, I'm cheap as hell, and you're not getting a tip. Live from Doug's Budget. (laughs) Find out more by searching the Stacking Benjamins podcast wherever you listen.